Section six of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six Celsus Such was the Platonism of the second century. It has shaken itself free from the scepticism of the academy, and offers to the world a definite body of dogmatic teaching. Its teaching is that of Plato, with a difference in one aspect the difference is that between the original inspiration of genius and the plodding industry of the commentator or professor platonism has passed from the free open air to the library we see no socrates quickening the spark of divine truth in dull souls like that of menon's slave by his art of midwifery but nigrinus musing among his books and globes we hear no longer the inimitably graceful myths of the phaedrus or the republic those parables as we may call them in which dialectic divination, sober earnest, and airy fancy are blended together like the hues of the rainbow. We miss the rare personality of Plato, so richly endowed both on the philosophic and on the sensuous side. We miss the poetry and the sense of humour, and these influences have a serious bearing on the reality, the practicality of speculation. What Plato gave as a tale told by ancient sages, as a vision, a possibility, the allegory of the charioteer, the story of Ur, the son of Armenius, the poetical cosmogony of the Timaeus, has become part and parcel of the cut-and-dried teaching of the school. Philosophy has become impersonal, methodical, in a sense less real. Yet in another respect it is more real. The great charm of Plato is that he binds men to nothing. But definiteness of thought is after all a necessity for men who want to live and not to drift. Hence the later Platonists were driven by the nature of things to ask their master precisely what he meant, to seize and define his leading thoughts, and as far as they could to bring his idealism into an orderly whole. Plato used vague language even of the ideas. His followers explained them to mean not only the great spiritual laws of beauty, goodness and truth, but the actual patterns of existing things. They regarded God in the old-fashioned way as intelligent and good, yet at the same time they spoke of him as beyond existence and as wanting nothing the first of these phrases implying that he does not think and the second that he has no consciousness of the world so that he could really be neither intelligent nor good again they conceived of the ideas as existing outside the mind of god like golden statues as plotinus says so that when the deity wished to create he must first look about for the pattern and perhaps not recognize it when he found it all these crudities are found in Plato himself, often side by side with hints of a different complexion. What his followers did, down to the middle of the second century, was to select, reiterate, and harden them, and in this way to bring to light their inherent confusion. They were more real again in another manner. They could no longer play with ideal republics. The deluge was upon them, and the question was how the existing state could be saved hence their zeal for the conservation of the established religion this is why by the side of the two deities of their philosophy the supreme intelligence and the world spirit they introduced the whole pantheon of the popular mythology the lower gods and the demons this also they found in plato what distinguishes them here from their master is the clear perception that the influence of the schools so far had been antagonistic to religion that religion itself was imperiled and that with it morality and general culture were in danger of perishing. What they desired was to consolidate the various mythologies, to retain the whole fabric of polytheism, and to guard the self-respect of the philosopher, by giving him, not instead, but in addition, a more enlightened creed of his own. How far was this possible? 
how far could men hope on these lines to build a system that might pretend to rival the gospel the question will be answered for us by one of these very men the true word of celsus was an elaborate attack upon christianity from precisely this position and it is still to be found almost entire in the treatise which origen wrote in reply it is uncertain who celsus was nor is it possible to fix the date of his book with absolute accuracy he mentions the apotheosis of antinous and seems to speak of the devastation of judea after the suppression of bar Kokhba's revolt towards the end of the reign of hadrian though his words may apply to the destruction of jerusalem by titus beyond these facts there is no very certain note of time but persecution was raging against the christians and the ship of the state was apparently in danger hence Chaim supposes that he wrote about 178 a.d just after the persecution of vienna when marcus aurelius was preparing for his expedition against the cadi in this case he was probably the celsus to whom lucian dedicated his exposure of the famous quack alexander of abonotaikos he was undoubtedly a platonist though origen fell into the error of regarding him as an epicurean but he was rather a cultivated man of the world than a philosopher there is a tone about him keen scornful positive practical which seems to denote familiarity with affairs on a large scale and in high position he writes like a clever proconsul there is a ring of menace in his words like many another magistrate in those days he condescends to argue and even to implore but ends by pointing to the altar and bidding the trembling christian burn incense or die but it is characteristic of the man that he saw with the eye of a true statesman the dangers to which aurelius was blind to this resolute clear-sighted man the meek pertinacity of the downtrodden church was ominous of catastrophe and his diatribe resolves itself into a sort of fierce appeal to the christians to have mercy on the empire they must make concessions like everybody else they must if necessary be forced to make them for the unity and very existence of the state are in jeopardy celsus insists that he knew all about christianity and his information is indeed extensive though it does not penetrate to a real appreciation of the points at issue he was awake to the distinction between the great or catholic church and the heretics though he sometimes confuses properly christian teaching with the vagaries of an obscure gnosticism of which he knew more than origin himself he had read the books of genesis and exodus of jonah and of daniel he had studied the four gospels and possessed besides a general acquaintance with the phraseology of the whole bible which he may have acquired by reading or in conversation for he had talked with christian priests there is a highly interesting point involved here celsus tells us enough about the catholic church of his time to assure us that it was in all essentials the same then as now the only articles in the creed with which he explicitly deals are the incarnation the descent into hell and the resurrection but as far as this enlightened and bitter antagonist is aware there was not and never had been any difference in the church on these points he knew the four gospels and the four only he alludes to the epistles of st paul and his silence is no proof that he did not possess the rest of the new testament as well because he mentions no book that he could not strike thus this trenchant heathen critic becomes one of the most effective of apologists and his evidence is all the more important because there is really no strong ground for dating his book much after the barcochba revolt widely read as he was he knew of none but ignorant christians and had never heard of justin tassian athenagoras melito miltiades or apollinaris and he does not refer to the infamous charges of child murder and debauchery 
which in the time of aurelius were alleged currently against the christians the true word falls into two divisions of which the first is put into the mouth of a jew while in the second celsus speaks in his own voice to the jew is ascribed the task of attacking the person of our lord part of what is here to be read for instance the panthera legend still exists in the talmud and celsus is no doubt guided by what he had actually heard from the lips of jews the arrangement gave him a double advantage it enabled him to assail the moral character of our lord under cover when he speaks in his own person he is much more temperate and conciliatory willing to wound and yet afraid to strike again celsus hated and scorned the jews beyond the power of expression to him they were the runaway egyptian slaves who had never done anything worth speaking of their sacred books were mean and ridiculous to the last degree he scoffed at egyptian beast worship the jews were infinitely beneath the egyptians and the christians were renegade jews at whom their own kinsmen made a mock this is why the jew is called in to demolish the gospel before celsus takes up his parable and in a much less acrid tone undertakes to show the christians the real truth which they had missed though not wholly which they had missed precisely because of their jewishness the point insisted upon by the jew is the weakness the baseness and the failure of the life of jesus he was the son of panthera the prophets foretold a great prince lord of all the earth all nations all armies not a pestilent fellow like this compare his passion with that of bacchus in euripides king pentheus who had dared to imprison the god was torn in pieces for his impiety but pontius pilate suffered nothing why did not christ then at any rate if not before show his divine power save himself from this shame and punish those who were outraging himself and his father see how on the cross he craved for drink unable to bear thirst with the commonest fortitude and do ye reproach us ye faithful ones because we do not count him a god nor agree with you that he bore all this for the good of man that we too might learn to bear chastisements the truth is that after he had failed in life to persuade anybody even his own disciples he was punished thus you will not surely say that after he had failed to persuade men here he went to hades to persuade men there you may invent absurd apologies for him but if they are to be heard what is to prevent us from regarding any one who has been condemned and died a miserable death as a divine messenger it needs but sufficient impudence to say of any executed robber or murderer he was no robber but a god for he foretold his fellow robbers what he was to suffer the evidence of miracles the jew derides on the ground that our lord himself confessed that evil men could perform them the evidence of prophecy on the ground that if he had known what he was to endure he would have avoided it it has been said that the gospel leaves us with the dilemma out deus out homo non bonus celsus distinctly adopts the second alternative christ was not a good man the later platonists porphyry and hierocles had learned to use very different language and preferred to argue that the church was unworthy of its founder but the true word is valuable on this very account because it points so sharply the radical inherent antagonism between hellenism and christianity hellenism was always aesthetic dignified aristocratic and abhorred suffering as a personal degradation christ could not be god just because he was crucified it is curious to notice to what a depth of perplexity the clever celsus was here reduced if christ had failed why was he writing his book there was no beauty in our lord that any platonist should desire him it was still commonly believed in the church 
that our lord's figure was plain and unattractive and this was a ground of offence for personal grace had come to be regarded as a necessary adornment for the philosopher socrates was ugly as a satyr but the greek alexander traded largely on his good looks but the want of wisdom was even more repulsive to celsus than the want of dignity on this point he will speak for himself this is their cry let no educated man enter in none wise none prudent for these things we count evil but if any be ignorant any foolish if any untaught if any childish let him come boldly these they count worthy just as they are of their god and it is therefore obvious that they can and will persuade only fools and base-born and dullards and slaves and silly women and children but why is it wrong to be educated and trained in the best thoughts and to be and to be known to be wise how does all this prevent a man from knowing god why does it not rather help him in the attainment of truth we all know the jugglers who display their abominable tricks in the marketplace and then send round the hat they would not dare to come into a company of sensible men and there play their pranks but wherever they see lads or a group of slaves or a gathering of foolish fellows thither they shoulder their way and there they show their wonders just so we see in private houses wool carders cobblers fullers the most ignorant and the rudest fellows never daring to open their lips in the hearing of grave elders or sensible masters no but they get the children and foolish wenches into a corner and tell them wonderful things do not listen to your father or your tutor but to me they talk nonsense they are dotards so stuffed up with idle prejudices that they neither know nor do anything right we alone know how one ought to live listen to us and you will be happy and the house will prosper and while they are talking in this way should the tutor or the father pass by if they are prudent they run away but the hot-headed ones egg the children on to rebellion we cannot tell you what is good they whisper while father or the tutor is here because they are bad men and will punish us come away with us into the women's apartments or the cobbler's or the fuller's shop and then we will tell you all about it the priests of other mysteries he proceeds cry come ye that are clean of hand and discreet of tongue ye that are pure of all stain whose spirit knows no guile and whose life has been good and just but whom do these christians invite the sinner the foolish the childish the unhappy these the kingdom of god will admit the sinner that is the unjust the thief the burglar the prisoner the robber of temples and tombs why it is a robber's invitation god sent to sinners not to the sinless why what harm is there in being without sin the unjust man then if he brings himself low through his wickedness god will receive but the just who practices virtue and looks up to him from the first he will not receive men who rightly administer justice compel the prisoner to cease from wails and laments lest justice should be warped by pity but god as it seems is guided in his judgments not by truth but by flattery few things in ancient literature are more striking than the picture which celsus gives us here of the manner in which christianity was burrowing its way into the most guarded recesses of pagan life there were shoals of these obscure missionaries many of them doubtless very ignorant and very narrow though many were neither one nor the other hermas and blandina were slaves so were the popes pius and callistus so possibly was the great clement of rome so indeed were a multitude of distinguished heathen philosophers including epictetus the sensible men of whom celsus speaks with admiration denounced these humble servants of god to the magistrate and clapped their hands 
when they were torn in pieces by wild beasts in the arena what a commentary is afforded by his fierce scorn of the kingdom of god upon the high-flown pagan phrases about the dear city of zeus celsus makes the mistake of supposing that all christian teachers were ignorant but he makes the still graver mistake of not asking what it was that gave fullers and cobblers a power of persuasion denied to the schools why did what he thought their parrot cry believe and thou shalt be saved go home where the doctrine of the absolute passed unheeded celsus himself supplies the answer he believed that a sensible man wants no redeemer that a wicked man must not come near god that god cannot forgive or pity and that religion is an abstruse science which no cobbler can understand the nature of evil the nature of god could only be explained to philosophers if the mechanic the unhappy wanted to be saved let them first learn geometry astronomy and the theory of ideas then and not till then they might hope to see god origin cuts through all this intellectual system with one quotation from the gospel blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god justin martyr's platonism was knocked to pieces by one question from the old man whom he met on the seashore how can the intelligence of man see god except it be adorned with the holy spirit of human nature the wise greek was more ignorant than a child the heart was an unexplained riddle to him a mere source of disturbance to the abstract laws of motion to this day our knowledge of it is based upon that mystery of the cross which celsus derided the platonists were therefore wholly wrong in their favorite contention that there was nothing new in christianity to the heathen world sin was a new idea meekness a new virtue and love a new law even if it were true that there is no saying in the gospel to which some sort of parallel cannot be found elsewhere it would not follow that the gospel as a whole is not new a watch is a new thing though cogwheels chains and springs were all known before the first watch was made if it were permissible to speak of our lord for one moment as a scientific discoverer we might say that he found the supreme law of spiritual life in a set of phenomena which the greek had wholly neglected and which even the jew did not understand and that he thereby revolutionized all philosophy and all ethics the same unlovely spirit of scorn guides celsus in his treatment of the subject of revelation here he differed from the christian first of all as to the position of man in nature the race of jews and christians he says is like a string of bats or ants coming out of a hole or frogs squatting together round a pond or worms met in church in a corner of the mud disputing which are the more sinful and saying god foretells everything to us he leaves the whole world the moving heavens and neglects the broad earth to live amongst us alone to us alone he sends messengers without cease always scheming that we may be with him they are like worms who say there is a god and next to him are we his children and his likeness he has made us lords of all earth water air stars all is for our sake all is appointed to minister to us and now the worms go on to say because some of us are sinners god will come and burn up the unjust in order that the rest may have eternal life with him celsus more than once speaks of christians and jews as worms but his language is something more than a mere outburst of roman contempt his point is that the bible makes the whole universe revolve round man as its center and that this is wrong he would not even allow that man is chief of the animals they eat him with as much right as he eats them the bee is equal to him in social wisdom the elephant in conscientiousness the stork in filial piety and the phoenix is altogether more wonderful 
the all he concludes is not made for man any more than for lions eagles or dolphins but in order that this world as god's work may be complete in all its parts and from this he draws the inference that god is no more angry with man than with apes or flies origen was so staggered by this language that he thought celsus could be nothing but an epicurean that is an atheist indeed celsus is altogether wrong he misapprehends the position of his antagonists and he coarsely exaggerates one element of the platonic theory while leaving out of sight the considerations by which it was laboriously corrected the bible does not say that all was made for man but it does regard man as the chiefest of all god's visible works by virtue of the reason and conscience with which he is endowed he is the interpreter and in a limited sense the ruler of nature the almighty created all things for his own good purposes he governs and cares for all he feedeth the young lions that call upon him yet it is written of man that he is a little lower than the angels and that all things are put under his feet man is the crown and king of the world but we do not therefore affirm that the world was made for him or that his happiness is the one sole object for which the world exists just so we say that the tsar is the emperor of russia without meaning that russia was called into existence for his good pleasure no true platonist could flatly deny all this they allowed that man was the image of god a phrase that celsus ridicules that he alone possessed intelligence that he alone was immortal but if man by virtue of his reason and conscience is the chief of creation it follows that the whole must be ordered with some regard to the training and development of those faculties each part has a meaning and value of its own yet all strive towards the perfect fruit and minister to its formation and nutriment sometimes by their own destruction this is the sole ground on which modern science can justify vivisection this again no true platonist could flatly deny though the school never attained to a consistent view of its own meaning the subordination of nature to man was involved in their opposition to stoicism and in their belief in providence the stoics maintained that nature was indifferent and had nothing at all to say to man plutarch replied as we have seen that this was not true that the world was a proper training ground for human virtue and it is obvious that the school must be constructed with a view to the needs of the scholar the same thing follows from any conception of providence god cares for all the world but he must care principally for that which is principal he cannot have flung reason into an alien world and left it to shift for itself but the platonists were hampered on many sides they held that the world is good and yet that matter is evil and it seemed to them to follow that life though a school is only a reformatory school into which souls are sent to expiate the sins of a previous existence again the conception of god as absolute was every day gaining the upper hand of the conception of god as father god the absolute wants nothing and therefore knows and cares for nothing here platonism differs from atheism only by its contention that though god neither knows nor cares for the world the world knows and cares for god but the absolute as celsus rightly maintains can feel neither love nor wrath he got over this difficulty like plutarch by assigning the administration of providence entirely to the demons the masters of the prison house as he calls them thus polytheism becomes a vital part of his monotheism and the chief offense of christianity is its crowning saying that god is love celsus held in common with all his school that the world being the work of the perfect and unchangeable god is itself perfect and unchangeable evil was not of god 
it was the resistance of matter to the divine thought hence the quantity of both good and evil in the world was invariable he could not therefore admit any kind of evolution all truth has been known from the first and the world can never be either better or worse hence there never can be any reason for god to come and set it right this is the only serious point that he makes against the incarnation he scoffs at the idea of god coming down and leaving heaven vacant in order to find out what he knew already he scoffs again at the flesh of our lord though homer compelled him to admit that the gods had often appeared in human shape but without giving up his philosophy he could not admit that there was any need for the incarnation origin held that the world was growing worse a view which at that particular period of history was by no means without foundation this lends some appearance of force to the assertion of celsus that the bible represents god as perpetually interfering with his own work issuing new and ever more stringent appeals to sinners and issuing them in vain but the christian teacher also saw how god's purpose broadens down through the old testament into the new how the light waxes brighter and clearer through the long line of prophets and symbols to the rising of the dayspring from on high there is a deeper philosophy in the opening verses of the epistle to the hebrews than any that celsus had grasped he could not admit that truth grows or is increased he hoped for revelations like all platonists but to him revelation signified not the gift of knowledge or new strength but the mere sight of a deity so much has been said of the influence of greek philosophy upon the church that we should not omit to notice that evolution is a purely christian idea to the greek unity implied fixity to the christian it involved the idea of a living and growing whole it was thus that the church answered the gnostics who regarded the old testament as false it was thus that athanasius explained the incarnation from theology this fruitful conception has passed into science and from science it has made its way into philosophy the church need not be afraid of its own child the resurrection of the body celsus rejects with profound disdain here again he labors under difficulties the doctrine of the church was not altogether what he makes it nor does he fairly represent the state of opinion on his own side homer ascribes to the dwellers in hades a material though shadowy existence plato in the story of er the son of armenius represents the spirits as coming in bodily shape to cast lots for their new lives upon earth the demons who play so large a part in the system of celsus were corporeal the gods the sun moon and stars had proper bodies of their own and could assume human shape when it so pleased them it was generally allowed that till the spirit was finally purified from all taint of uncleanness according to empedocles for thirty thousand hours or cycles it retained its corporeity in some sense many platonists speak of a fifth body or element besides the recognized four air earth fire and water of which the superterrestrial organism is composed but here again celsus allows his scornful spirit to run away with him he makes one brief jibe at the seed or glorified body of the epistle to the corinthians and directs his artillery solely against the belief in the resurrection of this flesh he insists on the absurdity of supposing that the tissues once dissolved can ever again be brought together but his chief point is the shamefulness of the belief the body is unclean disgusting a miasma that god should ever unite himself with such a mass of corruption is the inconceivable thing that man should hope to see god with these eyes is the hope of worms they say he adds that with god nothing is impossible but he cannot do what is shameful nor will he do what is against nature 
the argument of celsus rests upon the deep-seated belief that the flesh is a devilish thing and to christians who have learned to look upon the body as a worthy tabernacle of the divine spirit this calls for no answer but we must notice that here too in the resurrection of the body as in revelation the church dogma enfolded the germ of a philosophy absolutely antagonistic to the whole current of greek thought and yet deeper and truer the way to that unity which the hellenists sought in vain lay through a right appreciation of his own flesh and blood this celsus might have learned from christianity in which he could find nothing new christianity in fact was something absolutely new its morality rested on new motives and implied new standards its doctrines though not as yet explained or coordinated were destined to issue in a new philosophy celsus felt this and he taunts the christians with being revolutionists and what is a revolution if not new but he was too passionate to see it clearly he forgot that though a thing may be stupidly put by fullers and cobblers it is not necessarily stupid in itself he forgot also that every religion is an inarticulate philosophy indeed he did not in the least understand this or he would never have thought it possible to unite the absolute with the demons or the religion of greece with that of egypt as it was he thought it must surely be possible to convince these simple men of the error of their ways they could not persist in the infatuation of worshipping an impostor a dead man now that they had listened to the true word they must give up jesus and then the only question that could arise between himself and them was the lawfulness of demon worship this accordingly he proceeds to make as simple as possible you say he tells them that you may not serve two masters but you are already doing so for you set christ beside and even above god you say that you may not eat at the demon's table but you cannot help it they send you corn and wine theirs is the water you drink the air you breathe they bless your marriages and comfort you in trouble you cannot refuse their benefits unless you go out of the world they govern how then can you refuse them due honor it is true that god is to be worshipped above all but he permits and requires due observance to his agents just as caesar expects men to reverence his own majesty in the person of his proconsuls if the christian shrank from idolatry celsus comforted him with the assurance that the statue was a mere symbol but even here he cannot abstain from a cruel scoff many of the hot-headed christians eager for the martyr's crown would strike the images of the gods saying see i stand before your zeus or your apollo i curse him and buffet him and he can do me no harm yes answers celsus and do you not see that we stand before your demon and not only curse him but banish him from land and sea and you his consecrated image we bind and crucify and your demon son of god as you call him cannot defend you it was too true the demons had been fed with christian blood and the time for argument was surely past celsus dwells on the bright side of hellenism and no doubt it had a bright side but the persecuted church knew too well that murder lust and malice belonged to the worship of the greek gods as truly as feasting and music it is a strange sight to see this proud roman appeal to the patriotism of those whom he was ready to crucify for the name's sake he must have credit for discerning how dangerous the church might become but if he had looked a little deeper he would have realized the futility of the compromise he proposed in the last sentence of the true word he professes his intention to write a sort of catechism for those christians who listened to his reasoning as he makes no doubt that many would but this treatise does not appear to have been called for 
End of section 6. Section 7 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7. The Neoplatonic Trinity. Somewhere about the middle of the second century, a change came over Platonism in its two main articles, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the ideas. Out of this change sprang Neoplatonism in the strict sense of the term. Plato distinguishes between two worlds, the invisible and the visible, the spiritual and the material. The first is the eternal pattern of the second. The second exists only as it participates in, reproduces the first. The first is the world of being, the second of becoming, because here all things are born, grow, decay, and die. How does a carpenter make a bed? He does not make the idea, the notion. All the beds in the world are built with one purpose, express one thought, participate in one ruling conception. The carpenter does not make the idea, that is given to him, but he makes the bed in accordance with the idea. But whence did he get the idea? It was given to him from above. There are two beds, the ideal and the actual, and two makers of beds, God and the carpenter. Ideas are not separable in the same way as things that we can see or touch. They run into one another. A bed is a piece of furniture on which to take sleep. Sleep is useful. Usefulness is good. Thus all ideas culminate in the sovereign idea of the good, the fountain of all knowledge and all existence. Of this wonder of beauty which is the author of science and truth and yet surpasses them in beauty, Socrates speaks in the sixth book of the Republic. It cannot be described for it is far above the reach of mortal words. Long training in abstract science leads on to the hymn of dialectics, to the metaphysical faculty, that is to say, in which reason blends with the vision of the poet and the divination of the saint. It can only be expressed dimly in a figure. It is like the sun. The sun is the child of the good, whom the good begat in his own likeness, to be in the visible world, in relation to sight and the things of sight, what the good is in the intellectual world, in relation to mind and the things of mind. But in itself it is beyond the sun, and beyond all being in majesty and power. These last words form the definition which Plotinus gives of the supreme God. To him God is the good. The same thought must surely have crossed the mind of Plato himself, but for some reason he refrained from adopting it. This we see in the Timaeus, the Platonic book of Genesis. Jowett called the Timaeus the most obscure and repulsive to the modern reader of all the writings of Plato, and the reader who does not mind obscurity is puzzled by a further difficulty whether the dialogue is to be taken seriously or regarded as a mere jeu d'esprit. But there can be no doubt that the later Platonists took it very seriously indeed. They found in it the keystone of the Platonic system, and if Plato had a system at all, it is certainly here that its leading principles should make themselves felt for the subject is nothing less than the relation of God to the world and to man. Now in the Timaeus God is expressly distinguished from the ideas. They are the eternal pattern to which God looked when he created the world. It is obvious what a difficulty arises from this curious bit of psychological archaism. If we are to press the point, God thinks as man thinks. His thoughts are suggested by an external object, and he has no ideas of his own. We can scarcely understand how such a notion can ever have arisen. Plato abhorred sensationalism. 
yet it might be said he has only translated sensationalism into heaven but this strange defect adhered to the school for centuries and plutarch even assigns a definite local habitation to the ideas there are a hundred and eighty-three worlds he tells us arranged in a vast triangle the space within is called the plane of truth and here dwell the eternal forms plutarch however tells us also that some held intelligence to be the place of forms a little later alcinous or albinus calls the ideas the thoughts of god yet later still porphyry opposed plotinus on this very point insisting that the ideas were outside of the mind but porphyry was already behind the times it had become evident that this grotesque conception was not tenable henceforth men held that god thinks his own thoughts and that the world in which we live is a copy of the divine mind the former of the two propositions is in fact the aristotelian doctrine that god thinks himself perhaps this is the best instance of the sense in which the neoplatonists were eclectic it is evident how greatly their native system gained in simplicity and coherency by this adaptation of a peripatetic formula side by side with this change by which the ideas became finally the contents of the divine intelligence another was in progress by which the number of the divine beings was increased from two to three in the timaeus there are two the creator and the world spirit the latter is called the only begotten and created heaven a blessed god and is said to have received soul and intelligence through the providence of god this is still in the main the position of plutarch but shortly afterwards we find the soul of the world spirit distinguished from its intelligence thus we get a triplet soul intelligence and a higher intelligence the last is spoken of as one as a point as neither good nor evil because above both as having no differences no qualities and wanting nothing yet at the same time as mind and as self-conscious it is the pythagorean monad the absolute cause and yet it is the aristotelian deity this is the position of the second platonic epistle which is quoted by justin martyr but cannot have been known to either philo of alexandria or plutarch and probably came into existence not very early in the second century apparently of albinus and apuleius and certainly of numenius of apamea numenius was the first to speak distinctly of three gods he was a syrian and possibly a jew for he was well acquainted with the old testament quoted and allegorized the prophets spoke of the book of genesis as a prophecy and called plato an atticizing moses by this phrase which would have shocked celsus unutterably he meant that all platonism could be evolved by skilful interpretation out of the pentateuch it becomes therefore not impossible that numenius was acquainted with the works of philo of alexandria which were written with this very purpose there is however no clear proof that he was and a strong argument on the other side is to be found in the fact that he did not give his second deity the distinctively philonian title of logos this is why it has not been judged necessary to give in this little volume any account of the famous alexandrian jew philo lies altogether outside the line of development of heathen platonism though he anticipated by more than a hundred years that onward step by which alcinous identified the intelligible world with the mind of god one further step was needed before this physical and intellectual trinity could be brought into a satisfactory shape two divine intelligences might have been possible if they had been endowed with mutual desire this however was altogether repugnant to the platonic notion of deity god wants nothing 
he is cause of all in a very peculiar sense not as man is cause of his own actions but as a magnet is cause of movement in iron filings not an impelling but an attracting cause he is that towards which all things strive hence there could not possibly be two equal or similar intelligences in the divine world one moves all thought is movement and therefore the other cannot move it is the stable point towards which the other's movement is directed a point and nothing more hence it cannot be an intelligence it cannot be anything at all it is as it were an ideal spot outside the whole realm of existence towards which the whole realm of existence is drawn it has no name but we may call it the one the good two names which express different ways of regarding the same mysterious fountain of all life this idea was present to the minds of alcinous and numenius but it was not clearly grasped the extreme elaboration with which plotinus argues that the one could neither think nor exist shows that the conception was strange and repellent to his own disciples it was no doubt that philosopher who gave final shape to the platonic trinity soul mind and the one we might say without absolute error that these three represent the platonic world spirit the aristotelian deity and the pythagorean monad and that we find here at the top of neoplatonism a fusion of three schools of thought yet it is to be observed that there is not a single element in the new combination which is not to be found in plato himself plotinus merely defined and arranged in logical sequence what the timaeus tells us about the creator mind and the god of nature and what the republic tells us about the child of the good and the good which is beyond all being the neoplatonists were eclectic only in that sense in which all learned and historical thinkers must be so they developed their own system by the aid of hints derived from other schools as regards their philosophy they were purely greek Momsen indeed regards it as a transformation of western thought in the spirit of the east Tenemann, Ritter, and Harnack take much the same view. On the other hand, Richter pronounces it essentially a creation of Greek thought, on which the spiritual forces of the time naturally exercised an influence. And Vacherot, while noticing that Plutarch dabbled in oriental speculations such as Zoroastrian dualism, finds in Plotinus an energetic reaction of the Greek mind against the influences of the East. It is a question not of individual thoughts but of balance and temperament the leading neoplatonists were not greeks but this is true also of the stoics again a certain impalpable tinge of orientalism lies possibly at the very root of both pythagoreanism and platonism in the doctrine of metempsychosis and in a general leaning towards mysticism which in the former is strongly marked but in neoplatonism as a system there is not one single idea that does not flow in a straight line from the dialogues of plato himself plotinus is a metaphysician rather than a moralist that is to say he has moved on to a new field but at no point has he lost touch with his master his modes of reasoning his phraseology the character of his intelligence his precision his aestheticism are all intensely greek he moves among the clouds but if he does not succeed in introducing scientific exactness among the airy forms that surround him it is not for want of a desperate struggle it is not in their thought but in their mysticism that we must seek for oriental influences if they are to be found at all even here there was a greek root mysticism is of all countries and all times but there is a vast difference between hermes tripping out of a wood to meet odysseus 
or even the pythoness raving on her tripod and the ecstatic vision of the absolute the one grew out of the others but no doubt the growth was fostered and quickened by the increasing influence of the mysteries and of these the most powerful form was the egyptian superstition of isis here arises the question whether mysticism in the shape given to it by the neoplatonists was essential to their system or whether it was really a foreign adjunct a branch at which they caught when they felt their logic begin to shake beneath their feet upon this depends largely the view which the reader will take as to the value of their contribution to the thought of the world but we must postpone the point till plotinus has shown us what the neoplatonic mystic was as it is best Bacherot, as we have seen regards neoplatonism as an energetic reaction of hellenism against foreign influences these were no doubt of many kinds but the most menacing were either directly christian or set in motion by christianity we have seen the angry alarm of celsus at the growth of the church but the ship of the faith as it ploughed its way onward disturbed the waters far and wide many men watched the new movement with curious eyes attended church as we learn from the shepherd of hermas to see what went on there and without becoming converts assimilated so much christian thought as made them very bad hellenists the result was a cluster of systems in which heathenism is so jumbled up with christianity that it is often difficult to say which predominates they are what we know as gnosticism gnosticism was in no case properly speaking christian it formed a tertium quid between the church and other ways of thinking and it forced upon both sides the necessity of closing their ranks and defining their position neither christian nor hellenist would have anything to do with it plotinus is just as emphatic in his condemnation of the gnostic mingle mangle as Irenaeus. in this way a peculiar interest attaches to the wild rhapsody that goes by the name of the permander of hermes trismegistus it belongs probably to the second century and contains a most singular farrago of pythagorean pantheism and egyptian quasi-philosophy drawn from the book of the dead the style is that of an opium dreamer of whom we can just say that he was once a reasonable being but it is dotted throughout not as zeller thought in only two of the thirteen chapters with christian phrases uttered as in sleep and it is the only pagan work in which the second person of the platonic trinity is entitled the logos we see in it the absolute breakdown of philosophy in face of the new problems of the age we see christianity like the fig tree rooted in the walls of a greek temple loosening the joints of the masonry and helping on the work of secular decay but we learn from it also to appreciate the real power of plotinus by whose strong hand the battle was once more set in array and the forces of disintegration checked at any rate for a time it is not necessary to treat at any length of the writings of apuleius of madara he was an orator and a romancer but not an original thinker indeed even his milesian tale of the golden ass is not original the framework and most of the incidents of the story are borrowed and the reputation of apuleius rests chiefly on his style which with all its elaborate euphuism is not unpleasing he was a man of peculiarly vile character and any one who is inclined to agree with dr hatch in thinking that the immorality of heathenism has been exaggerated cannot do better than read through the metamorphoses and compare it with tom jones the book is all the more instructive because it was not meant to be instructive at all apuleius simply narrates and never moralizes but the picture of life which he gives is several degrees darker than that of juvenal a professed satirist 
the book however has one redeeming feature in the charming story of cupid and psyche this has more than once been clothed in an english dress mr r bridges has turned it into graceful verse and thomas taylor and william adlington into plain prose the latter version has been edited by mr a lang with a learned preface on folklore but this artistic composition has very little indeed to do with hottentots or zulus it is really a very elaborate piece of allegory metaphysics without tears psyche the youngest fairest and sweetest daughter of a king was beloved by cupid yet knew not that she was beloved by the god's command zephyr bore her on his wings down the hideous mountain precipices to his palace in a fairy glade beneath it was the most beautiful palace ever seen full of all kinds of glorious things there is nothing that was not there here she was married to cupid but the heavenly bridegroom visited her only in the darkness of the night he was loving and good as heart could desire but straightly charged her never more to look upon the two sisters she had left behind otherwise said he thou wilt bring upon me the most poignant grief and on thyself utter destruction nevertheless poor psyche could not rest content and teased until she gained an unwilling consent the two sisters came full of spite and envy and poured into her yielding ears the forgeries of their own malice psyche listened and was lost resolved to break through the mystery of her life she took into her bridal chamber a covered lamp and a knife in the dead of night she bared the light and beheld on the couch not the monster she feared but the winged son of venus in all the radiance of his divine beauty but as she hung enraptured above him a drop of scalding oil fell upon cupid's shoulder and awakened him from his sleep the god upbraided her sorrowfully with her fatal treachery and flew out of sight on his golden pinions psyche who had wounded her thumb with one of cupid's arrows now loved love with her whole heart in her despair she would have drowned herself but pan the shepherd god who bestows the gift of divination soothed her grief with hope bidding her pray so she sets out on her lonely pilgrimage in quest of love widowed but no longer despairing first she avenges herself on her two sisters whom she drives to self-destruction but the way is long and helpers there are none she turns to Ceres, the queen of the mysteries. She adores Juno, the goddess who softens the birth pangs, but neither will protect her against the wrath of Venus, who is bent upon destroying the mortal bride of her son. At last, seeing all other refuge vain, she makes submission and casts herself at the feet of her mighty enemy. She is received at the palace gate by a handmaid named Habit and scourged by anxiety and sorrow. Yet here she is at least under the same roof with her beloved lord. Venus sets her hard tasks to do. She shows her a huge heap of all sorts of grain and bids her separate them before nightfall according to their kinds. But a legion of little ants come to her relief and the work is done. Again she is commanded to bring a handful of wool from the golden fleeces of the sheep beyond the river. Here a whispering reed helps her. Before noon, it says, the sheep are fierce and will rend thee to pieces. Wait till the cool of the day when they fall asleep. Then thou canst cross the water in safety, and gather the tufts of wool, that thou wilt find sticking on the branches of the neighbouring grove. Again she is to fetch water from the dismal cataract of sticks. Here the eagle befriends her. He fills her crystal vase and gives it back into her hand. Last and hardest of all her labours, she is ordered to go down to Hades, and bring back from Proserpine a box of beauty, 
a tower whose battlements she had climbed with the intention of flinging herself down and so ending her woes takes pity upon her the friendly stones begin to talk they warn her of all the perils of the way and enjoin her not to open the box she goes and returns through perils unnumbered but no sooner does she emerge into the light of day than curiosity overcomes her she lifts the lid forth flies not beauty but a deadly sleep and psyche falls fainting to the ground but here her trials end cupid now healed of his wound came and kissed her and roused her from her swoon jove himself appeased venus and sanctioned the wedlock and when the tale of months was run psyche bore a fair child a daughter whom men call pleasure shall we interpret the allegory psyche is the soul cupid is the love of the ideal the desire of the soul for god his palace stored with all manner of beautiful things is heaven the intelligible world the divine mind filled with the radiant ideas the eternal patterns of all that is but the soul prompted by its two ugly sisters anger and desire rebels it will not be content with the darkness of celestial light it craves for visible sensual beauty and is exiled to this earth to atone for its folly then begins the upward path for this is a choice soul which still feels the prick of the heavenly dart and cannot make its home below it is saved from despair by pan the demon the spirit of prophecy who tells it that heaven may be regained by prayer and the first impulse of repentance is to cast off the hateful influence of anger and desire but the ordinary consolations of ordinary religion are insufficient for the gifted soul which aspires to climb the heights neither the mysteries nor the gods can help psyche must submit perforce to venus the mother of her darling the patron lady of philosophic training by which the heavenly love is brought to the birth by venus her enemy and yet her friend she is first chastened in the hard school of habit anxiety and sorrow that is of moral discipline for the practical virtues are the necessary purgation of the aspiring soul then she is trained in intellectual tasks the heap of many kinds of grain is the multifarious pageant of sensation which the busy ants the senses arrange and discriminate the golden wool is the higher reflecting morality which cannot be garnered till the heat of the day is past till the storm and stress of youth is over the water of sticks is dialectic of which the fitting symbol is the eagle which alone of all creatures can gaze unabashed upon the sun then comes the descent into hell and the deadly sleep what is this is it that anguish of spirit which st john of the cross called the dark night of the soul the black and horrible darkness which precedes the mystic's vision or is it death perhaps it is both for one is twin brother of the other at any rate in the awakening that follows the soul clasps again the lover to whom it once proved faithless and the issue of that embrace is not a mortal but an immortal child not base earthly pleasure but that joy which can dwell in heaven End of section 7section 8 of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 8 hellenism we have now traced the history of platonism down to the eve of the advent of plotinus and at this point it may be well to pause and cast a glance upon its great rival the christian church the two systems were in many important points wonderfully alike and platonism on its religious side was remarkably catholic or eclectic yet it did not adopt one single lesson from the gospel 
it remained to the last in its tone of mind purely aesthetic and intellectual in its morals predominantly egotistic in its modes of worship purely heathen was it the same with the church or are we here to recognize a distinct influence of greek ideas and if so is it an influence that plays upon the surface only or does it reach inwards and effect more or less of a transformation the question is embarrassed by the fact that the word hellenism is used by two different classes of writers in two different senses to the one it signifies that which is true and permanent in greek thought to the other that which is local heathenish and transitory both rest upon philosophy and on antagonistic philosophies the former on hegel the latter on kant and the opposition of principle leads to different conceptions of history and different rules of criticism to the former belong the tubingen school bauer and fleiderer to the latter the richlin school harnack and hatch both claim christianity as their property and undertake to show by their own special methods how it came into existence and how and in what order its documents were produced the reader will see why renan said that few people have a right to disbelieve before we can settle the date of st john it would seem to be necessary to regulate hegel and kant all we can attempt here is to convey some idea of the difference between these two points of view for the first we may take a well-known passage from the philosophy of clothes highest of all symbols are those wherein the artist or poet has risen into profit and all men can recognize a present god and worship the same i mean religious symbols various enough have been such religious symbols what we call religions as a man stood in this stage of culture or the other and could worse or better body forth the godlike some symbols with a transient intrinsic worth many with only an extrinsic if thou ask to what height man has carried it in this manner look on our divinest symbol on jesus of nazareth and his life and his biography and what followed therefrom but on the whole as time adds much to the sacredness of symbols so likewise in his progress he at length defaces or even desecrates them and symbols like all terrestrial garments wax old in the dogmas and rites of all the churches says fleiderer carlyle recognized the natural products of the historical stage of culture reached by the peoples to him they were the symbols in which the eternal idea must clothe itself for the consciousness of every age all this is in fact modern neoplatonism a neoplatonism which differs from the ancient by the assimilation of the scientific doctrine of evolution and by the partial assimilation of the christian doctrine of character hence there are divergencies in the midst of a strong general resemblance the view of carlyle of dr fleiderer of the master of balliol rests upon metaphysics on the possibility of knowing god by reason it regards religion as a whole as the natural evolution of capacities implanted in the soul of man it denies all miraculous interference it regards all religion as imperfect and transitional and all dogmas as mythical presentations symbols vorstellungen of the eternal truth begriff yet it is optimistic and believes that there are new and better things in store on this view hellenism is precisely idealism there are many difficulties in such a conception of christianity which we may at least point out it is evolutionary and makes of our lord the product of the age yet the jews rejected him and judaism has gone on evolving itself along its own lines and the higher criticism is making this evolution more and more difficult formerly we regarded the promise as succeeded by the law and this by the prophets and it was possible to regard the light as broadening slowly down but modern writers treat first of prophetism 
then of the night of legalism and the development has gone again hegel spoke of christianity as the absolute religion but this is not the language of evolution notions propounded almost two thousand years ago cannot be regarded as final by a darwinian either in dogma or in morals dr fleiderer criticizes and corrects even what he allows to have been the genuine teaching of our lord but if christianity is not absolute in what direction is the advance to be made those who have rejected dogma must now attack morality in order to justify their own principles and will this better things dr fleiderer holds that his view is optimistic but evolution is not optimistic it may issue in degradation and actually did so in the case of judaism but the main difficulty of this as indeed of the rival hypothesis is that of accounting for the peculiar dignity attributed to our lord it cannot explain why he was crucified because apart from his personal claims his teaching was not more subversive of the ruling ideas than that of the essenes but still less can it explain why the church regarded him as god there is agreement upon this point that unless jesus had been deified christianity could never have been more than a jewish sect yet the divinity must be held to be an illusion a mere symbol of the eternity and universality of the truth which jesus taught this illusion is generally regarded as originating with saint paul who shows few if any traces of hellenism and completed by saint john who had perhaps heard of philo we can permit ourselves only one remark on this most singular view dr fleiderer builds not indeed the truth but the whole power of christianity on a natural and beautiful but wholly false mythology and proposes to retain the power while abolishing the mythology that created it or may we hazard a second remark according to dr fleiderer the deification of a man secured the triumph of christianity yet the platonists deified apollonius and nothing happened idealism has the graces of breadth and sympathy it sees in rites and dogmas clothes beautiful forms of still more beautiful truths which in their abstract form would never have won their way into the hearts of men renan and victor hugo adore catholicism and would leave it intact as the religion of the common sort just as the platonists did not in the least want to interfere with the mysteries of eleusis richelianism on the other hand regards these same rites and dogmas as stupid or cunning distortions by which a primitive protestantism was turned into catholicism for this reason it seems to be finding favor with english nonconformists who welcome it as an ally against sacerdotalism as the horse called in the man to help him against the stag without adequately weighing the consequences those who shrink from the difficulty of grappling with ritual's own writings will find a lucid summary of his teaching in a pamphlet by g milke das system albrecht ritual's or they may be referred to Kaftan's Truth of the Christian Religion, which has been translated in Clark's series. Richlianism is a free school, and there are differences of detail among its adherents, but its general position is well defined. It is based upon the philosophy of Kant, who insisted upon the relativity of all knowledge. Sense, he taught, perceives what it is constructed to grasp. Reason thinks as it is made to reason. We cannot get behind and correct either our perceptions or our reasonings. We must believe them, but cannot tell whether they correspond to objective realities or not. Yet to this destructive criticism Kant admitted, or seemed to admit, one exception. While the understanding and the speculative reason tell us nothing but what is open to doubt, the practical moral reason grasps the eternal law of right, the imperative command, or categorical ought, of conscience. Here, then, Kant found the one thing certain, the one road up from the world of appearance to the world of reality 
the one proof of god freedom and immortality but why this one if it is generally wrong to argue from effect to cause why should it be permissible in this all-important case readers of heine will recollect his wicked scoff at this sublime inconsistency kant's followers endeavour to be more thoroughgoing Gaftan, for instance makes conscience as contingent as anything else when we say that men ought to do right we mean simply that the world is so built that they cannot be happy without doing what we call right nevertheless the rich lean also must have a way up this he finds in faith which guarantees the being nature and purpose of god and the soul thus the kantian metaphysics come back again but only in a religious shape only to religious men and only by direct communication to the individual the proof of faith's message kaftan finds in conformity with his general principles not in speculation of any kind but in history we know from history that jesus christ brought to man the full revelation of the father's loving will and planted it on the earth in the doctrine of the atonement and in the institution of the church or kingdom of god we know also from history that this doctrine and this institution do make men free they include the sum of the highest knowledge attainable that is to say of moral and religious belief the only kind of knowledge that brings man into his true relation to god thus all that is supernatural aesthetical mystical or speculative can be brushed aside as of no religious value but the richlians regard all these elements in common christianity also as unhistorical that is to say as later importations like a man who disarms the robber by going naked richlianism makes peace with science by excluding from the kingdom of god all that science can possibly dispute yet after all it makes the work of christ consist in revelation in the imparting of some kind of knowledge not in satisfaction and this moralizing of the atonement is precisely what dr flatterer regards with approbation as hellenism but with this far-reaching limitation it holds a high view of the person of christ in him says kaftan faith has and recognizes god christ has for us the value of god such language is not to be taken to mean that he is god nor indeed that he is not if pressed upon this point the richlian would reply do not ask we cannot know and if we could know it would not avail knowledge is not religion in this austere system hellenism means firstly the setting of knowledge above faith or the coordination of knowledge with faith secondly all externalism or legalism in doctrine in the sacraments in ritual or discipline the church is the kingdom of god the body of those who have absolute faith in christ and there is a tendency to deny that the significant parable of the tares and the wheat was really uttered by our lord it will be seen that we have here an entirely different indeed a contradictory sense of the word hellenism to the idealist this word signifies platonism regarded as true to the richlin it signifies partly platonism regarded as false but mainly the influence of the unregenerate or half-regenerate world which is always striving to get hold of the pure gospel and pull it down to its own dead level by this agency the simple kingdom of god was transformed into the catholic church there is no doubt a germ of truth in this worldliness is a vera causa of deterioration else there would have been no reformation richlinism is a truly religious mode of thought and is right again in maintaining that the grace of god in jesus christ is the one thing that makes the christian but what difficulties arise when these two truths are made the foundation of a system richlianism will have nothing to do with intellectual belief god says dr hatch did not reveal metaphysics 
because Kant taught that the knowledge of the Ding an sich is impossible. We must leave this point to be fought out by the rival schools. But Kant himself is a metaphysician, and so is Dr. Hatch. They limit metaphysics in what Heine and others think an arbitrary fashion, but they believe in God, a soul, a revelation. They believe above all in the moral law, and the moral law belongs to the essence of deity. And if metaphysics are no help to faith, we may ask, without entering on disputed points, why Christ revealed the Father, or why St. Paul in the epistle to the Philippians drew the lesson of humility, a lesson new to the heathen world, from the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ. Again, the Richlian minimizes all sacramental or disciplinary aids to faith. Here again we observe an extraordinary difference of view between the two schools. The legalism, which Bauer called Jewish, becomes on the Richlian theory mainly or entirely Hellenic. But the truth is that this vein of thought is in the Gospels, in the undoubted teaching of our Lord himself. We believe that he instituted the Catholic sacraments. But at any rate, Catholicism is to be found wherever he spoke of the Father as King or Master, and of his reward as wages. But finally, the Richlin view is, as Dr. Fleiderer rightly insists, pessimistic. It teaches that God is Father, but, like the Greek Plutarch, it denies that he is holy. It sees in St. Bernard much more to lament than to admire. It regards St. Athanasius as having saved Christianity from complete Hellenization by a definition which is radically absurd. It represents the Church as the product of dull scholasticism and uninspired moralism, the creation of the pedant, the bureaucrat, and the man in the street. And to the scientific world the remedy which it proposes will appear even worse than a disease. It invites men to go not forward but back to a gospel of which hardly any two of the critical school give the same account, a gospel which had from the first so little vitality that it degenerated into an alien type in the very days when such life as it possessed was at the strongest. The theology of the Church was not Hellenic. This Celsus shows beyond the possibility of doubt. Even Dr. Hatch does not assert that it is. What he maintains in his curiously oblique Hibbert lectures is that, whatever may be said as to the definitions in themselves, the tendency to define, and the further tendency to insist upon the definitions as affecting conduct, is Hellenic. But it seems unreasonable to call the process by one name when we must call the result by another. Even the process was not that of the Greek schools, as was shown by Mr. Gore in his Bampton lectures. And lastly, the insistence on agreement in dogma was the very antipodes of Hellenism. What the Greek claimed was liberty of thought. The very reason why Christians were persecuted was that they were exclusive. We must use the word Hellenism in its proper sense which is rather that of the idealist than that of the Richlian, to denote that which is distinctively Greek in thought, conduct and religion. What we are to ask is how, and to what extent, properly Greek ideas affected the Church. But we must confine ourselves to the region of speculation. Organisation, discipline and ritual lie outside the limits of our investigation. End of section 8《
but word was not used by the heathen platonists except in the baser stoic sense of natural force platonic philonism may be detected also in the epistle to the hebrews some commentators have fancied that platonism underlay even a famous passage of st paul philistines two six and seven where the apostle speaks of the form of god the shape of man form belongs at any rate in the usage of plotinus to the ideas and to the second though not to the first god shape only to visible things but st paul goes on to speak of the form of the slave and the resemblance appears to be purely accidental it would be most strange if it were otherwise some of the christians were educated men and why should they not express themselves in educated language so far as it lent itself to their purpose philosophy is a mode of reason and much of what greek philosophy taught was true the gospel was given not to destroy reason or the language of reason but to fulfil in applying to christ the jewish platonic title of logos st john was following the example of st paul at athens when he preached upon the unknown god whom ye ignorantly worship him declare i unto you when hellenism endeavoured to thrust into the creed notions at variance with its living import the church resisted it cast out gnosticism the history of this struggle in spite of the dullness of the details is most instructive gnosticism was an attempt to capture the church in the interests of hellenism and would have resulted if successful in the destruction of christianity about this there is no dispute but the gnostics have been called the first theologians on the ground that they only attempted to do in a hurry what the fathers succeeded in doing in more leisurely fashion that is to foist upon the church an alien and destructive system of metaphysics yet they certainly would have destroyed the church and the fathers certainly did not the history of gnosticism extends from an uncertain date somewhere about the christian era to the end of the second century after this time it ran off into other forms especially manichaeism which had a long life and was known to st thomas aquinas it originated partly in the vast and shifting mass of babylonian syrian and jewish angel law partly in the zoroastrian doctrine of an evil and a good god the phantasmagoria resulting was tinged more or less deeply with greek philosophy mainly pythagorean or platonist pythagoreanism had oriental affinities to begin with and the foggy eastern intellect saw no difference between the abstract conceptions of the schools and the concrete shapes of its own mythology even the later platonists hardly kept the two apart the triads of iamblichus and proclus are barely distinguishable from the gnostic emanations if we add to these considerations what we learn from the shepherd of hermas or Lanciani's pagan and christian rome that there were numbers of people who regarded the church with an intelligent and not unfriendly curiosity as the last new thing who attended the christian services and yet lived gentile lives we have all of the conditions out of which gnosticism arose it produced a multitude of arbitrary systems which defy classification because they are so arbitrary they stretch away in a long line from the doors of the church to the vestibule of the pagan schools none was properly christian and none was properly philosophical they were opposed at the one end by Irenaeus and hippolytus at the other by plotinus and amelius sostrianus and aquilinus against whom the neoplatonists wrote are not otherwise known to us but they belong to the same family as basilides and valentinus the former were excommunicated by the schools and the latter by the church the gnostics started from the platonic axiom that god is good and nothing else and from a fact of observation that man's works are often evil like platonism indeed like all the greek schools they would not admit that man makes his own evil evil therefore must come from matter 
and is the operation of the wicked spirit who created the sensible world this is in fact the persian ariman even plato had hinted at the possibility of a bad soul and plutarch as we have seen held the same belief it is the most permanent and characteristic feature of gnosticism indeed in marcion it is almost the only one that survives that it is not a christian doctrine goes without saying it is not even greek difficult as it may seem to draw the line between the platonic theory of matter and the gnostic tenet of a god of matter but it made a dogma of that which to the platonist was a difficulty whatever might be the explanation of evil it could not possibly be a god of this the platonist felt no doubt and the world is the work of god and therefore cannot be bad though it may fall short of the divine plan further the perceptions of sense are the condition of the higher intellectual knowledge we gather our first ideas of god from the world itself what then becomes of either religion or philosophy if the first step of the ladder is broken away you cannot become good says plotinus by despising the world and the gods that are therein and all beautiful things the bad man despises god and if he is not wholly bad by despising god he will become so the gnostic others said wanted a sixth sense for his natural five senses showed him nothing but the devil to the gnostic theoretically salvation meant enlightenment or knowledge but from the point of view of practical religion it meant deliverance from the clutches of a hostile external power by the christianizing sects this was held to be the work of jesus who brought to light the hidden mysteries of wisdom including all the cosmogonies yet not by his death for they were more or less denied the reality of the passion and not for all there were three classes of men the earthly or hylic the psychic and the spiritual the publican and sinner belong to the first and must perish eternally their dualism led naturally to a harsh asceticism for which also it is curious to notice that plotinus an ascetic himself reproved them there are indeed two kinds of asceticism and what the platonist says is entirely in harmony with the sharp remark of clement who observes of basilides that he hated the creator though he ate his food breathed his air and in his world had the strange gospel of gnosis preached to him gnostic asceticism ought to have led to prompt starvation but like all fanaticism it tended to produce a result exactly opposite to its principles it issued frequently in the most disgusting antinomianism in which the rites of aphrodite pandemus were known as spiritual communion porphyry notices this fact as well as the christian fathers yet further the belief in a devil god leads inevitably to magic plotinus charges them with this also not only because they cast out devils but because they thought to command the divine favor by hymns noises breathings and whistlings of a technical description what the technique was is not difficult to guess and gnostic amulets remain in plenty to illustrate what arrhenius tells us about marcus is by no means mere christian prejudice and is not to be compared as dr hana compares it to the christian doctrine of the eucharist even in its medieval shape indeed there is nothing more surprising in the history of the church than the slightness of the degree in which the prevalent belief in art magic infected the sacraments this alone is sufficient to show how correct and thorough was the moral teaching of the church the gnostics were the first regular commentators on the new testament indeed they could not help themselves valentinus found in the plural word eons of which st paul is rather fond the name which in his system belongs to the hierarchy of emanations heraclean the basilidian discovered in the husband that was not a husband of the samaritan woman her pleroma or guardian angel 
books that contained such mysteries obviously required to be turned over word by word the rebus was no good without a key the gnostics were aided in their search for the non-existent by allegorism that fatal engine devised by pagans who were ashamed of their mythology yet would not give it up the christians adopted it not from the gnostics but from philo or the spirit of the age they wasted much time over it but they used it mainly to discover what they already possessed to find that is to say the new testament in the old and in this they were not altogether wrong the gnostics appealed also to a secret tradition handed down from the apostles against this the church very naturally opposed her own tradition what else could she do the gnostics were also the first practitioners of the higher criticism the first that is who applied subjective canons to find interpolations in documents that did not happen to suit their theory or pragmatism thus marcion mutilated the gospel of st luke they were the first to find hellenism they called it judaism in the teaching of our lord and the apostles and to set paulinism against catholicism and to take philosophy as the norm of what is possible or impossible for god and to hold that belief in the facts of the creed is not necessary for a christian man whether the church or the kantians are their natural and lawful issue the reader may decide but for all these reasons the gnostics were not the first theologians those who call them so mean that they were the first who attempted to spoil the pure gospel by setting knowledge above faith but it is surely allowable to ask of what kind was their knowledge and what fruits it bore the answer must be that their gnosis does not even pretend to be derived from the new testament the evil god comes from a foreign and hostile source and certainly it cannot be denied that gnosticism had a tendency to express itself in forms of life that were heathen and not christian at best it may be regarded as a halfway house through which many pagans like ambrosius or st augustine found their way into the church the second century is the age of the apologists they were men who living in a time when everybody even emperors professed to honor philosophy that is to say truth and when yet christians were put to death for their truth thought that they might venture to plead for toleration christians they maintained were moral men and good citizens and their dogmas were not so unlike the conclusions of the schools as to call for their extermination by fire and sword what we are punished for they said is merely the name you think that the name is a cover for horrid crimes but this if you will listen to reason is not the case their object was to present christianity from the common sense point of view without using arguments that a heathen would not recognize and without going into needless details hence the view which they present of the life of the church is by no means complete in particular they give us only the merest outline of the liturgy with one exception they abhorred the very name of philosophy to them it meant rationalism the greeks says aristides who profess to be wise are more foolish than the chaldeans hermius wrote a treatise full of bitter mockery of the schools they contradict one another cries tassian each utters just what comes into his head they hate each other they receive large salaries from the emperor in order that they may not wear their long beards for nothing theophilus could not find the most ordinary truth in their writings for if any of their sayings seem to be true it is mingled with error among us says athenagoras you might find laymen artisans old women showing by deed the benefit of their profession even if they cannot explain by word the good the word has done them iranius charges the schools with calling ignorance knowledge if they had really known the truth the incarnation would have been needless tertullian regards the philosophers as patriarchs of heresy friends of error justin is an exception 
he had been a philosopher before he became a christian and was no more ashamed of his philosophy than he was of his christianity even after his conversion he wore the garb of the schools the blanket cloak or pallium he saw in greek science part of the great preparatio evangelica reason is the handmaid of faith it teaches men to love truth and to discern it it gives truth and sharpens that hunger and thirst for divine knowledge which can only be satisfied by him who is the light of the world this is the general position of justin and it leads him to dwell with predominant emphasis on the joannine doctrine of the logos which is the golden bridge between dialectic and revelation the word made all men is in all men speaks truth to them and saves them if they will but follow his guidance they who have lived with the word are christians even though they have been counted godless such as socrates heraclitus and those like unto them among the greeks since the proclamation of the gospel he held that none could be saved unless he accepted jesus as the christ that is as the promised messiah still he was inclined to go so far as to extend the name of christian to those who while they accepted jesus as christ yet denied his eternal pre-existence and his miraculous birth because these could not be demonstrated and could not that is to say be proved exactly from the old testament for there are some he says of our race who confess that he is christ but insist that he is man born of man with them i do not concur and the majority agree with me and would not say so either since we have been commanded by christ himself not to believe in the doctrines of man but in those things which were preached by the blessed prophets and by himself that is to say justin regards the belief in the divinity of our lord as resting on the authority of christ himself and as not capable of absolute proof from the words of the jewish scripture he is thinking of the ebionites some of whom though not all held that jesus was mere man he judged that they might perhaps be saved provided that with their observance of the law they united the confession of the christ of god and did not insist upon binding the law on gentile converts the belief of justin himself was that of the church at large and it was built upon the gospels but here there arises a question is hellenism to be found in the belief in our lord's divinity or in its disbelief again did hellenism cause the tolerance of justin or the intolerance of other christian teachers according to celsus neither the belief nor the intolerance was hellenic according to dr hatch both were but celsus is right the belief is christian the tolerance is christian also but it marks the man trained in the free atmosphere of the hellenic schools in one respect however the apologists undoubtedly philosophized they are the first exponents of the modern doctrine of the freedom of the will dr hatch found the same teaching in epictetus and the later stoics but in this he did not display his usual accuracy no greek school ever held the same language as the christian church the platonists did not regard the will as a distinct faculty they considered it as an inclination of character to them we may say there were two wills or instinctive desires that of the mind for truth that of the flesh for gratification aristotle made will an independent mental act but confines its operation to the selection of means towards a given end how the end is given the all-important question he does not attempt to decide the later stoics in spite of their fatalism went a step beyond this the sensual man they held is the slave of his delusive fancies and has no freedom at all yet there is such a thing as freedom it is right judgment and this is absolutely in our power at any time we are always free to be free because the one end is open to choice the apologists in their recoil from the fatalism of the stoics and gnostics 
went further still will they taught is the independent faculty of choice it selects not the means only but the end and not one end only but both life and death are clearly set before men in god's word and each deliberately chooses for himself either one or the other either good or evil free will in this sense belongs to men and angels for god the end is fixed by the goodness of his divine nature but even he selects means the origin of this doctrine is undoubtedly biblical it is found in both testaments it was held as a necessary corollary of the belief in divine rewards and punishments but it is absolutely un-greek in the light of this conception moral evil is no longer a disease the view of all hellenic schools without exception but a rebellion this is an entirely different point of view and its moral consequences are immense no one seems ever to have suggested that the counter doctrine of grace is hellenic though it has an obvious resemblance to the platonic theory of the heavenly eros both are biblical but free will is more jewish and grace is more christian the former we may say is more ethical the latter more religious the predominance of one or the other gives rise to two different aspects of christianity which are sometimes though improperly called by the names of catholicism and paulinism both exist side by side in the gospels we find them in the titles of god as king as father in the offices of our lord as saviour as judge in the conception of heaven as a hope deferred as wages or as a present kingdom as the peace and joy of the holy spirit in the view of the christian life as new law or as freedom in fear and love as motives in the antithesis of works and faith it is probable that saint peter and the majority of the twelve inclined to the more ethical view saint john insists upon love almost to the destruction of free will and saint paul carries the doctrine of grace to the very verge of individualism the history of the church has been marked by reactions of the one tendency against the other the spirit of discipline is the first and most obvious need of the church but it leads to dryness and formalism when these evils appear the christian mind turns instinctively to the love of saint john the grace of saint paul and fills once more the empty bottles with wine and as these again issue in their characteristic defects of vagueness of belief and disunion the need of the law which guarantees the freedom again asserts itself the first great revival of paulinism or joanninism is to be found at the end of the second century in irenaeus and the alexandrians the next in the theology of athanasius the next in that of augustine another at the reformation and we are living at the close of yet another in all these crises we can detect the influence of the literae humaniores of cultivated sympathetic thought of poetry philosophy in our own time of science also acting in unison with the spirit of god to break the fetters of conventionalism and lift men into nearer communion with their father and with one another if hellenism may be taken to mean the love of truth and beauty for their own sakes and of all kinds of truth and beauty and this is in fact the noblest part of its meaning this has been its appointed task to remind the church from time to time that her dogmas spring from and are intimately connected with the great laws of physical and human nature but hellenism also tells the church that those laws are all sufficient without any metaphysical explanations and in this it is a bad counsellor end of section nine Section 10 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. The Alexandrians. Clement, or we may call him Saint Clement, lived from about 150 to about 213. 
origin from about 185 to 254. The first was born in the middle of the reign of Antoninus Pius. The second died in consequence of his sufferings in the persecution of Decius. Clement would remember well the philosophic emperors. Origen died just before the shameful disasters of the reign of Gallienus. There were general persecutions under Aurelius and Severus, and every now and again the governors of particular provinces lighted the flame, as Arius Antoninus under Commodus in Asia, Scapula at Carthage under Caracalla, Serenianus in Cappadocia under Maximin. But upon the whole, as Lanciani shows, Christian and heathen got on amazingly well together. The Ostian potter did not care in the least whether his lamps should be decorated with Bacchus or with the Good Shepherd. It was for his customers to decide. The profession of the gospel was not more dangerous than many other things. It offered considerable prospect of gain to the poor who could get upon the church roll, to the clever who might hope for office, to all travellers who by means of commendatory letters could secure free and comfortable quarters wherever they went. The church was already a powerful and munificent corporation, and numberless parasites fed upon its simple-minded charity, like Peregrinus, whom Lucian took for one of his butts. Peace had led to laxity and corruption. Numbers flocked into the church who brought their heathen ways with them. Long before the end of the second century the church had become a landowner. Pope Victor enjoyed influence at the imperial court, and from the time of Severus, perhaps from that of St. Paul, there were many Christians about the palace. Caracalla was suckled on Christian milk, Alexander Severus awarded to the church a piece of land that was claimed by the guild of licensed victuallers, quoted Christian maxims, thought highly of their mode of electing bishops, and set up a bust of Christ in his private chapel. The Emperor Philip is said to have been a Christian, and to have submitted to Christian reproof. It was the age of Gnosticism, of Noetianism, of Artemonite Unitarianism, of the Puritan revolts of Montanism and Novationism, of the Easter and Penance disputes. These exciting topics called forth a host of learned writers, whose names are recorded in the pages of Eusebius, from Hegesippus to Hippolytus. They insisted on the authority of the scriptures and of ecclesiastical tradition. They shaped the liturgy and formed the canon. They regulated the calendar with a view to the due observance of Easter. They reduced prophecy under rule. They established the theory and practice of the sacrament of penance and of infant baptism, and they brought the episcopacy into its final shape. The law that bishops should be consecrated by bishops was made good even at Alexandria in Clement's time. Monasticism had not yet begun, but its principles were already at work. It is hardly an exaggeration to say that there was no essential difference between the Church of Origen's time and that of the Middle Ages. Transubstantiation was the prevalent belief, though the doctrine was not as yet, of course, expressed in the technical language of the Latin schoolmen. At this crisis began the activity of the great Alexandrines. It was conditioned by a liberal education received in the famous catechetical school founded, under the bishop, possibly by the apologist Athenagoras, but more probably by Pantinus, a converted Stoic philosopher, and by a double reaction against Gnosticism or semi-heathen intellectualism on the one hand, and, on the other, against the formalism of those whom Clement calls the Orthodoxists, and Origen the simpler brethren. The object is to show that true philosophy and pure faith are not enemies, but friends, and to bring back to the Church the right understanding of St. Paul and St. John. The school of St. Mark produced many eminent names, notably the great Dionysus, in whom the blessed spirit of peacemaking, the crown of true learning, shone with the purest lustre. 
but we must confine ourselves to the two most striking figures those of clement and origen both were learned men and possessed a good acquaintance with greek literature down to the time of numenius cronius and harpocratian origen had possibly been a pupil of ammonius saccus who began life as a christian and a porter on the quays and ended it as a heathen and the most famous lecturer of the time clement was to some extent under the influence of philo the jew platonist of the first century who distinguished the first ineffable god from the second and to the latter gave the title of logos or divine intelligence for a fuller account of this eminent man the present writer may perhaps venture to refer to his christian platonists of alexandria but philo's importance may easily be overrated both before and after clement the philosophy of churchmen was drawn from heathen writers and clement's own mind was shaped by teachers whom he had learned to respect before he ever heard of the metaphysical jew in temperament the two great doctors were strongly opposed clement was a greek origen a native egyptian clement appears to have been at first a heathen origen was son of the martyr leonidas and like timothy learned the scriptures as a child clement was a born orator and friend of the muses delighting in apt anecdotes and fine sayings loving everything in the shape of literature from the rabelaisian comedy of athens to the austere eloquence of the schools loving indeed everybody and everything except perhaps labor yet he was a diligent reader and a prolific though unmethodical writer the chief of his extant works is the stromateus carpet-bags or miscellanies this was a favorite book title at that time used by many authors from plutarch to origin its object is to present the contrast between gnosticism and the true gnosis or knowledge of the catholic church it flows on in sinuous meanders like a river through flat and flowery meadows and is left unfinished at last origen on the other hand was the prince of schoolmen and scholars as subtle as aquinas as erudite as rauth or tischendorf he is a man of one book in a sense the bible its text its exposition furnished him with the motive for incessant toil and he cared for nothing except in so far as it could be bent to this end the charm of hellenism its belles lettres its art did not touch him even its philosophy he regarded with a certain disfavor as a boy he coveted martyrdom he died a confessor the first part of his spiritual course he spent in the austerest asceticism and his days and nights to the last were devoted to labors of which no greek writer had any conception there was iron in his mould and it had been heated in the furnace but there was also a grandeur and a tenderness which gave him an extraordinary hold on the mind of his contemporaries we know hardly anything of clement but almost all that origen did was chronicled by friends or foes we must not attempt to give the long list of his works or the details of his well-known career for our purpose it is sufficient to say that he was infinitely more laborious than clement that he had passed through deeper experiences and that his intellect was bolder keener more comprehensive and more disciplined clement is apt to catch at anything that strikes him as what we call suggestive origen never forgets the relation of the part to the whole never slurs over a difficulty and his boldest flights are generalizations it may be on this account that he is much less liberal and much more ecclesiastical than clement learning with its load of facts is the ballast of speculation like justin clement found in the gospel the true philosophy truth he held is one shape under many names there is one river of truth but many streams fall into it on this side and on that 
truth is like the corpse of pentheus torn asunder by the bacchants each seizes a limb and each thinks she has the whole a famous simile borrowed from the platonist numenius philosophy must not be judged by the sins of the heathen any more than christianity by the defects of the churchmen it is the gift of the word and its natural fruit is not iniquity but righteousness it was a true covenant and justified those whom it led to renounce idolatry and live chaste lives further clement held that it has abiding utility man must dedicate his whole nature the best efforts of his noblest faculties to god he can neither understand the scriptures nor give a reason for the faith that is in him nor do his duty in the world without cultivated thought hence clement calls upon men and women alike to philosophize that is to think and if they can to study they are not to fear bogies not to fancy that any truth can hurt them it is the ghost of knowledge that does harm not the reality true knowledge gnosis belongs not to the gnostics or know-alls nor to the schools but to the church which has received the one body in the incarnation of the divine word thus philosophy becomes something more than a preparatio evangelica clement not only blesses its past work but promises it a place of high dignity in the future if it will take service in the army of christ regarding the creed as the expression of ultimate truth he saw rays shoot out from it in all directions to the furthest limits of human capacity two great thoughts are combined in this view the slow growing of light towards the perfect day this was justin's idea and is the first germ of what we call evolution and an infinite growth of knowledge from a fixed and stable centre the incarnation is the sum of all the past and the promise of all the future clement's view is perhaps a little too optimistic he did not allow sufficiently for the love of battle which cleaves to the old adam even in matters of research nor did he see clearly how variety of belief issues in variety of character one righteous man in so far as he is righteous he says does not differ from another he hardly recognized any distinction between a good stoic and a good christian though he himself makes love the secret of righteousness origin on the other hand was a pessimist he thought that the world was growing worse and this view increased as it must always do the positiveness of his disposition he sets the bible much higher and philosophy much lower than clement few he says have taken of the spoils of the egyptians and made of them the furniture of the tabernacle he knew celsus and looked upon hellenism as a hostile power to be conquered and stripped he took the gold and used it but it must first be cast into the melting pot this rule is a necessary safeguard against the silliest eclecticism but origen puts it a little harshly the influence of hellenism on these two distinguished men may be summed up under three heads one the notion of god two the morality of god three the life of man in the church one as regards the notion of god platonism rendered them signal service it taught them what is meant by the words god is a spirit to the stoics and to the popular understanding the deity was material and this opinion prevailed for some time in the church we find traces of it in Irenaeus, in tertullian in the clementine homilies perhaps in melito and in the anthropomorphism of the egyptian monks it leads logically either to tritheism or to unitarianism that which is material is divisible three material things cannot be one but god is one the platonists held that the divine being is of the nature of thought 
which is timeless and indivisible three thoughts may very easily be really and truly one for instance justice wisdom and fortitude are all the knowledge of the good wisdom is the knowledge in itself justice the knowledge as applied to the distinction of mine and thine fortitude the same knowledge regarded as resisting the impact of fear they differ according to the platonist not only in their contact with matter in their mode of dealing with circumstance but in themselves they are distinct yet they are one this is the great service of platonism to the church it is in fact the one step from the baptismal formula to the nicene creed platonism thus supplied the wanted explanation of the unity and co-eternity of the divine persons but it could not be used to express the co-equality whether the subordination of origin is traditional or metaphysical may be open to question but there is no doubt whatever that to the pagan schools the word homoousios did not imply equality indeed in the case of deity this notion was expressly excluded the intelligence was inferior to the one the soul to the intelligence in virtue of the rule that the child is always worse than the father the definition of athanasius was in no sense greek it rested on scripture on the religious experience on the christian doctrine of redemption in a word on a wholly different cycle of thought but clement was not content with spoiling the egyptians in his lazy eclectic way he borrowed from the schools the whole definition of the first and second persons the father is the monad the pythagorean one the absolute the son is the consciousness of the father the one becomes self-reflecting others had used the same kind of language before him the doctrine of the monad was not quite so abstract in the mind of numenius and his contemporaries as it afterwards became but the main difference was that they did not as yet discern clearly what it amounted to the monad is a cause but not a god it has great physical but no religious import it shapes a mystical philosophy yet raises no barrier as we shall see against the most abject idolatry clement could not and did not really believe in this self-contradictory deity who has no consciousness of the world but he tried hard to believe in it and it affected seriously his view of the religious life Origen was far more clear-sighted he held that man has in jesus and from the world a true though imperfect knowledge of the father and he could not allow that the supreme was apathetic god he writes has the passion of love two the sight of sin and suffering led the gnostics to believe in an evil god to whom they attributed also the absurd function of punishing the evil that he has caused the true god they thought is good but not just the alexandrians maintained that he is both good and just that his severity is merely the reverse of his fatherly love and as a corollary of this they adopted the famous platonic axiom that the object of all punishment is to amend there they fell into a grave inconsistency they held like all the church that the seat of evil is in the will but the platonic axiom is the outcome of a system which teaches that sin has nothing to do with will that the soul itself never chooses wrong and that vice is nothing but a form of bodily disease these two theories of evil are wholly different and lead to two wholly different theories of punishment if evil is disease the cure is chastisement and chastisement is cure by way of medicine or by way of surgery the sufferer can be healed if sufficient time is allowed and ex hypothesi the soul is immortal on the other view evil is rebellion against a law the revolt of one will against another ignorance is not sin though it may be the punishment of sin 
evil begins when the i will of the bad man sets itself against the thou shalt not of the ruler in this case the object of the sovereign the personified law in inflicting penalties is self-preservation punishment is the safeguard of law that is to say of the unity life and welfare of the whole and of the individual in and through the whole it does not aim at amendment but at the maintenance of that law which alone can amend that this is so is evident from the fact that if the sufferer refuses to acknowledge the justice of the law his punishment only makes him worse the inadequacy of the platonic theory seems obvious it teaches us that we have no right to punish a man unless we are sure that he will amend and that if he will not amend we must go on increasing the penalties ad infinitum for the smallest offence until we have broken him down mild as it seems it leaves no place for either repentance or forgiveness sin is ignorance and ignorance is eternal because the soul is inferior to god and so long as ignorance endures punishment must endure but if sin is rebellion then submission is peace no further punishment can be needed except for the sake of example a consideration that may weigh with the state whose laws are uncertain in their operation but not with almighty god further experience teaches us that the punishments of god are not curative shame and remorse indeed are so but these must be considered rather as the pangs of returning life nor again is discipline the loving severity of the holy spirit to be regarded as punitive the proper penalty of sin as such is hardness and indifference god it is written hardened pharaoh's heart these words shocked origin inexpressibly he felt that they could not be brought within the circle of his ideas but he could not see that this stubborn verse contained the very truth he wanted in this particular point a mistaken theory has been productive of great disasters it led the church to that debtor and creditor theory of sin in which luther discovered the taproot of all the medieval corruptions it made forgiveness unmeaning the christian was forgiven once in baptism because all previous sins had been committed in ignorance but now that he had received the light he could never be forgiven again further it made the cross the fountain of pardon an absolutely unintelligible mystery for why did the spotless lamb suffer if all suffering is medicinal or how could his sorrows profit those who can be healed only through their own these remarks apply more or less to the anti-nicene church at large the peculiar work of clement and origen was merely to enlarge the prevalent belief in purgatory into that of universal salvation which is found in clement but was elaborated into a system by origen it rests partly on the corrective platonic theory of punishment partly on the aristotelian axiom that justice binds god to deal equally with all men which is quite as untenable origen saw clearly that in this world no such equality rules and could find no way of escape but by importing into christian theology the whole platonic account of the origin and destiny of man antenatal sin and birth upon earth as its punishment the descent of the purer souls who come freely down to help the spirits in prison the resurrection of an ethereal body created for itself by the spermatic logos of the soul the gradual rise through eons and eons of further trials the final consummation all this is neoplatonic and all this origin read into scripture by his method of allegorism origins after eternity falls under the warning not to be wise above that which is written his prior eternity is demolished by a passage in justin's trifo other souls aware asks the old man that this is the reason why they are in fleshly bodies and that they sinned before birth i think not replies justin 
then it would seem that they cannot profit by the chastisement nay i should not even say that they are chastised if they do not perceive the chastisement yet origen used his hellenism to defend a purely christian thesis the morality of god three both clement and origen were firm believers in the creed which they had received every article of it is to be found in clement and origen wrote out his regula fidei in the beginning of the de principis but they were both though origen in a less degree tinged with intellectualism to both the supreme end of human effort is the knowledge of god and heaven presents itself as that ideal world in which all mysteries will be explained and reason the noblest part of man will attain to perfect satisfaction they added that the road lay through love and in this the platonist agreed they added also through jesus christ and from this the platonist would not have dissented provided that by christ he might have been allowed to understand the pure divine unembodied intelligence which he recognized as a distinct personality the question is what is meant by knowledge by love and by jesus christ the alexandrians held that love is of the ideal not of the material this is platonic and that jesus christ is the ideal and that his flesh was merely the veil of godhead a necessary screen to prevent men's eyes from being blinded this again is half platonic as to knowledge there was a very broad practical difference the christians held that the gospel was a philosophy yet it was within the reach of old women the platonist maintained that no one could know god unless he had taken a university degree and studied geometry and the laws of music there is plainly a great difference of spirit here both sides insist upon contemplation recollection but the christian type is that of thomas a kempis with the bible on his knees the heathen that of nigrinus with his diagrams and his euclid nevertheless it is clear that neither knowledge nor love could be rightly understood till athanasius destroyed forever the old hellenic philosophic aversion to the flesh but in many points intellectualism is in agreement with the purest spirituality the alexandrians taught not only that god is our father but that the believer is already his son the kingdom is within though not as yet perfectly in this they were in harmony with the general sentiment of the church which was already praying not for the coming but for the delay of the end that the divine will might have time to realize itself upon earth the view that perfect life is wages a crown a beatific vision they had no wish to alter because it is evidently just but they destroyed the gross sensual conceptions of the heavenly banquet which attended what is known as chiliasm with the general frame and discipline of the church as it existed in their time they had no desire to meddle their sense of the need of unity was as strong as it well could be they were not protestants but within the creed and within the discipline they insisted on freedom as the heritage of every true christian they held that in the sacraments here again their platonism comes in it is not the matter that profits but the spirit they acknowledged the three orders and did not in any way interfere with their official position but clement regards the gnostic the true christian as the only earthly sacrificer because he brings to the father the offering of his own spirit and ascribes to the gnostic the judgment of souls whether he be ordained or not even origen did not admit that the priest could exercise the power of the keys unless he were a holy man indeed this view is to be found in cyprian and the constitutiones apostolicae yet they were not protestants and probably even if they had lived in the days of tetzel would have stood rather with contarini than with luther 
for they were content to buy freedom at the price of reserve and recognized different types of churchmanship both but clement more especially divided the christian experience into two kinds of life in modern times we have divided it into two kinds of church in this the alexandrians were from one point of view restricting the doctrine of free will from another they were attempting to harmonize the teaching of the whole canon of the new testament or perhaps we should rather say to assign their rightful influence to the teaching of st paul and st john they pursued this aim in true eclectic fashion not by grasping the inner harmony of free will and grace but by putting the latter on the top of the former so as to make it grow out of it the inherent difficulty of combining two such antitheses which is already very great was vastly increased by platonism clement really takes his start from the current distinction between practical and contemplative or moral and intellectual virtue the philosophers whom he followed regarded the former as merely negative or purificatory they break the hold of desire and set the soul free affection must be thus exterminated the spirit must become apathetic before it can really see and love the divine light of the monad this heathen intellectualism threw over the imagination of clement the same sort of glamour as scientific phraseology sometimes exercises at the present time it led him to a mode of talking which is a christianized form of the fairy tale of apuleius the two lives are opposed as law and freedom fear and love symbol and truth negative holiness and positive righteousness free will and grace heaven as a reward and heaven as a frame of spirit the lower begins with faith in the sense of submission it is fostered by grace in the sense of the external favor or help of god and issues in holiness or purification from desire it is a life of struggle sacrifice postponed desire reasonable self-love and its scriptural basis is the parable of the talents but now through obedience and growing reflection we learn to understand and to love gradually the servant becomes a son temptations fall away and the light grows till at last the believer is one spirit with the lord henceforth he is filled with upborne by grace which in this life is no longer favor or power but loving communion he attains to perfect apathy because no thought stirs against the saviour's mind he does god's will because he cannot help doing it he knows because love is the key to all secrets he has sacrificed even the consciousness of sacrifice and there is absolutely nothing left for him to desire because in christ he has all this is the disinterested love so famous in later mysticism it expresses itself in the mystic paradox that it is better to be with christ in hell than without him in heaven the true mystic demands nothing but to be allowed to love and will not pray the beloved even to cast a glance or a thought upon him like all mystics clement speaks of silent prayer but at this point he stopped short and left the dreaming of dreams to the heathen neoplatonists and the christian monks the reason is to be found partly in the brightness of his disposition but still more in that spirit of godly fear which tinged so deeply the devotion of the early church men did not venture to grasp at the beatific vision till their heads had been fired by sensuous allegorisms of the song of songs no one can help loving clement yet it is difficult not to be angry with him if he had hunted through the dictionary of scientific jargon on purpose he could hardly have picked out a more disastrous word than apathy but his two lives are the outer and inner way of all the mystics and the church would have been poorer without thomas a kempis
we may say that he has drawn the lower life in a spirit of charity and tolerance not of worldly compromise he wanted to find a place in the kingdom of god for those to whom their christian pilgrimage is a battle those who are in the just sense of the word apathetic who feel sadly their own lack of fire and joy to most of us probably miss rossetti's words go home we are of those who tremble at thy word who faltering walk in darkness towards our close of mortal life by terrors curbed and spurred we are of those not ours the heart thy loftiest love hath stirred not such as we thy lily and thy rose yet hope of those who hope with hope deferred we are of those of the higher life may we not say that with all his platonic affectation clement is a true child of st john his apathy after all is the love of the last supper whereof the love between the father and the eternal word is the archetype and fountain or rather what clement calls apathy it has been termed detachment in later times is its concomitant the monks held it to lead not to the sanctification but to the renunciation of all earthly ties here the platonic taint crept in again clement held the platonism but shrank from its extreme conclusions he was the most amiable and sociable of mankind nevertheless that love is unearthly its loins are girded its ear is uplifted for the heavenly summons and it shrinks not only from caresses and endearments but even from all labor which is not directly spiritual from engrossing study from the questions of the day its type is mary not martha clement not origin and its work is to fill the reservoir not to irrigate the fields the main fault in clement's description is that it is too systematic many illustrious christians do not really belong to either of his categories the two lives lie side by side in the world as they do in the gospels and interlock there is love in fear and fear in love probably no one ever attained to sonship without passing through the discipline of the servant like luther or origen or wesley but the conception of the higher life is at once too ideal love never can be disinterested it is not its nature and too narrow it seems to exclude those who with the fullest sense of the fatherhood of god combine the deepest fear of his kingship it does not really explain the cry of st paul woe is me if i preach not the gospel and it does scant justice to those whom we may call practical saints the great scholars rulers missionaries organizers philanthropists of the church the work of the alexandrians must be considered rather as a reformation a reaction against materialism and formalism than as an advance into hitherto unexplored regions the reaction was conditioned by enlightenment whence did this enlightenment come in form it was platonic in substance it was evangelical partly it harmonized with the gospel partly it did not the reader must now decide for himself where their platonism was in fact the voice of the holy spirit where it aspired beyond the limits of revelation where it led astray they put knowledge above faith but even this is not wrong unless the new testament is wrong for wisdom is the fruit and not the seed they may perhaps have erred in attributing too high a value to the intellectual factor of wisdom and in depreciating to the same extent the other elements of the christian character it is a question of degree it is not their fault but their crowning merit that they welcomed knowledge as the ally of faith and saw in god's children not one type but several in my father's house are many mansions end of section 10
Section 11 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11. Plotinus. We may exhibit in tabular form the chronology of Plotinus as given by Porphyry. Emperor Severus, regnal year 13, A.D. 205-6. Plotinus born. Plotinus aged 27 becomes student of philosophy at alexandria attaches himself to ammonius and remains with him eleven years plotinus aged thirty-eight joins expedition of gordian against the persians after the emperor's defeat escapes to antioch emperor philip regnal year one a d two forty four to five plotinus aged forty settles in rome emperor philip Regnal year three, A.D. two forty six to seven. Amelius joins Plotinus and remains with him twenty four years till the first year of Claudius. Emperor Gallienus, Regnal year one, A.D. two fifty three to four. Ten years after his settlement in Rome, Plotinus begins to write. Emperor Gallienus, Regnal year ten, A.D. two sixty two to three. Plotinus aged 58. Porphyry, who had already been some little time in Rome, is introduced to Plotinus, remains with him six years. At this date Plotinus had written 21 Enneads. While Porphyry was with him he wrote 24 more. Emperor Gallienus, regnal year 15, about. A.D. 267-8, about. Porphyry retires to Sicily. Emperor Claudius, regnal year 1. A.D. 268-9. Plotinus sends him thither five more Enneads. Emperor Claudius, regnal year 2, A.D. 269-70. Plotinus aged 66. Plotinus sends Porphyry the remaining four Enneads and dies towards the end of the year. The dates do not fit with exact precision. Porphyry got at the birth year by calculating backwards from the death. Either he placed the birth a year too late, or he added a year to his master's age. He did not know the day, nor even the month. Plotinus would never speak upon the subject, though he kept as festivals the birthdays of Plato and Socrates. He seemed to be ashamed of his body, and would not allow his portrait to be painted. There was, however, a likeness of him taken by Carterius, a famous artist, who was secretly introduced into the lecture-room by Amelius, and stole the shy philosopher's features. Origen tells us that in the scriptures none but bad men are recorded to have kept their birthdays as a feast. The tray is quite platonic. But it is surprising that Porphyry does not even tell us where Plotinus was born. According to Eunapius and Suidas, he was a native of Lycopolis in Egypt. Porphyry possibly left this bit of information out designedly. He wanted to convey a touch of mystery, and in this he succeeded, for the learned Empress Eudokia, in her bed of violets written in the 11th century, says, Plotinus appears to have been of no country, but some say he was a Lycopolite. The Roman name Plotinus was possibly inherited from Plotina, the wife of Trajan. The philosopher may have been a Copt, descended from a freedman of the Empress. At the age of 27, having no doubt run through the ordinary preparatory course, he entered the University of Alexandria for the definite study of philosophy. Here he listened to one famous teacher after another, but went away full of sorrow, with head hanging down. 
at last a friend introduced him to the classroom of ammonius succus at the end of the lecture plotinus exclaimed this is the man i was looking for for eleven years he remained the attached disciple of this famous teacher our readers will remember that in the tale of cupid and psyche the golden wool could only be gathered after the heat of noonday and aristotle thought young men unfit to hear moral philosophy these words were seriously meant no one was thought ripe for the discussion of first principles until he had attained the age of thirty at which he was eligible for the consulate in the state or the priesthood or the episcopate in the church plotinus was released from his allegiance to ammonius probably by the death of the latter but his vanderiara were not yet completed with the view of perfecting his experience by personal acquaintance with the wisdom of the persians and hindus he attached himself to the expedition of the ill-starred gordian gordian was murdered at the very outset of the campaign by philip and plotinus returned immediately to antioch hence after a brief stay he made his way to rome in the capital he spent the remainder of his life leaving it only to die at alexandria he had acquired a knowledge of all forms of greek thought of christianity for ammonius was a renegade and of those bastard systems that we know as gnosticism what he had deliberately chosen out of all this seething flood of opinion was the teaching of the inspired porter the new platonism the idealist religion to be hereafter expanded by the patient labor of his devout and original mind rome was exiled to a student like nigrinus but it was the fitting post for an apostle like plotinus athens was impossible because it was the seat of the diodarchus the high priest of conservative platonism and in any case was too far distant from the centre of life plotinus was drawn to the banks of the tiber by the same motives as st paul at rome he lived for twenty-six years the life of a priest philosopher he did not preach the gospel to the poor nor was it possible for him to found a church but in life and in thought he was true to his high idealist creed knowledge he regarded as but the means to communion with a personal god and to the fuller performance of the divine will he lived in privacy disliking politics and dissuading his friends from taking part in them and exercised the strictest self-discipline when he lay dying he refused to take treacle a popular nostrum composed of the flesh of adders saying that he never used the meat even of domesticated animals and his sleep was of the shortest his friends were numerous and devoted and included the emperor gallienus who tolerated christianity and his wife salonina at one time he is said to have obtained from his imperial patrons permission to refound a deserted town in campania which was to be called platonopolis and governed as an ideal state fortunately the project fell through and plotinus escaped the unpleasant experiences of dio chrysostom and indeed of plato himself but the fascination of his priestly character is best illustrated by the story of his wards many says porphyry of the noblest men and women when death drew near brought to him their boys and girls and property and entrusted all to him as to a holy and a divine guardian his house was full of boys and maidens among whom was polemo for whose education he was so careful that he would listen to his schoolboy verses he endured even to go through the accounts of his ward's possessions and was most accurate and businesslike saying that until they became philosophers their property and revenues ought to be kept intact and secure when they became philosophers he hoped that they would renounce their wealth like rogatianus the senator who gave away all his possessions emancipated his slaves resigned the praetorship and did not keep even a roof to sleep under 
like a true priest again he was a peacemaker and many a feud between the hot-blooded roman nobles was composed by his influence among the official class says porphyry he had no enemy but this popularity with the great raised him up adversaries among the philosophers who were for the most part a self-seeking race olympius who had also been a pupil of ammonius and envied the success of his old classmate tried to bewitch him but his sorceries recoiled upon his own pate and finding that he was more likely to suffer than to do harm he desisted plotinus revenged himself by comparing olympius to an empty purse a body without a soul the meaning of the story is that plotinus as the chosen servant of the one god could not be hurt by the demons who were at the beck and call of olympius in many ways he enjoyed special marks of the divine favor four times while porphyry was in rome did plotinus attain to the beatific vision to porphyry himself this grace was but once vouchsafed and then not till his sixty-eighth year once in the temple of isis an egyptian priest summoned a demon to appear in the presence of plotinus but to the great alarm of the enchanter a god revealed himself plotinus could read the secrets of the soul once he detected a thief by looking on the faces of a crowd of slaves he foretold that polemo would live a brief and stormy life he divined porphyry's intention to commit suicide told him the cause of his depression and ordered him to travel he died of a disease in the throat at the country house of zethus in campania six miles from the minturnae when the end was at hand he sent for eustochius who was living not far off at putioli eustochius was long in coming and when at last he entered the room plotinus said i was waiting for you the divine in me is struggling to go up to the divine in all thus he closed his life repeating as it were the ideal creed as he drew his last breath a serpent crawled from under the bed and vanished in a crevice of the wall he had always been a delicate man suffering much from indigestion he had a defective articulation and stumbled over awkward words when he spoke he perspired freely he was as shy as a girl and on one occasion broke down in his discourse because the famous origin the heathen was present he had the autocratic ways of shy men when diophanes read a paper in defence of impurity plotinus ordered porphyry to reply to it he seldom condescended to defend himself for ten years after his arrival in rome he taught orally having it is said made a pact with Arrhenius and origen not to vulgarize the doctrines of ammonius by publication during this period his lectures seem to have been of a loose conversational kind with no order and a good deal of nonsense says Aemilius, as if he were provoking his hearers to think for themselves in this temporary abstention from writing we find a trace of the disciplina arcani or economy from which the platonic schools crept into the church such reserve is of course impossible in an age of books Arrhenius and origen broke the pact and plotinus followed their example porphyry gives a curious account of his literary method he could not spell correctly wrote a very bad hand and ran the words into one another his sight was so weak that he could never bear to read over what he had written he did not put pen to paper till he had clearly arranged in his own mind all that he meant to say then he wrote as if copying from a book and if interrupted would go on again from the point where he left off as if nothing had happened porphyry speaks of the terseness the pregnancy the passion and enthusiasm of his style we shall convey the best impression to an english reader by saying that it is remarkably like the style of browning in its subtlety and lack of grammar there is no difficult word 
that the whole is infinitely hard his school was more like a literary society than a classroom generally the course was to read a passage from some standard author severus cronius numenius gaius or atticus among the platonists aspasius alexander or adrastus among the peripatetics upon this text there would be free discussion and the master would expound his views sometimes one of the disciples read an essay sometimes one of them would request the master to lecture on a special point such as the union of the soul with the body occasionally distinguished visitors like origen or thomasius would attend and there would be a sort of field day out of these discussions grew the enneads so called from the six groups of nine in which porphyry arranged them his most constant friends were Aemilius gentilianus a tuscan who quoted st john and wrote many volumes against the gnostics paulinus of scythopolis or bethsham eustochius an alexandrian physician zithus an arabian another physician zoticus a critic and poet castricius firmus marcellus orontius sabinillus and rogatianus four roman nobles serapion of alexandria a rhetor turned philosopher and a number of ladies jemina her daughter of the same name amphiclea chione chief of the band though late in joining was porphyry or malchus king at tyrian plotinus called him poet philosopher and priest saved him from self-destruction told him as much of his own life as he chose to make known and appointed him as his executor porphyry wrote a famous book against the christians there is a taint of superstition contentiousness and inaccuracy about him and he stands at a much lower intellectual level than his master but he was not an unworthy disciple and fills a respectable place in the history of his school plotinus was a man of reading and of wide experience he had surveyed all the schools and learned much from stoics and peripatetics but all his ideas whatever the source from which they emanated have been transformed and welded into new relations by the fire of his own creative genius his system is platonism though it has absorbed all the best fruits of greek thought further it is hellenism in substance form and method through his residence in alexandria plotinus was no doubt familiar with many forms of orientalism but no trace of eastern opinion is to be found in the enneads everything flows in a direct line from the teaching of his greek predecessors he was himself an eastern but if his intellectual activity was in any way modified by his origin it can only have been through the sentiments and the result must be looked for simply in the profoundly religious cast of all his speculations in this as in other points he represents the culminating point of a tendency universal among the greeks themselves but when we observe how many of his nearest adherents were eastern like himself it is possible to think that the fervor of his devotion was intensified by his coptic blood much the same thing is true of stoicism also the orient has always been the land of inspiration plotinus was charged with filching the ideas of numenius his friends repelled the attack with a heat that we cannot quite understand for there was certainly a connection between the two nor do they explain the difference further than by maintaining that plotinus was far superior in accuracy what they mean probably is that the one of numenius still possesses attributes and is not absolutely unconditioned but they may mean that numenius was a jew according to porphyry and his circle the spiritual father of plotinus was ammonius saccus ammonius left no writings 
and the brace of quotations that bear his name must be regarded with doubt hence we have no means for estimating the exact relationship between him and his great disciple that it must have included the two leading points the final definition of the absolute and the identification of the ideas with the intelligence of god neither was in a strict sense the creation of ammonius but his must have been the mind which brought them into clear relation and stamped them with that coherency which is the life of doctrines with what difficulty these conceptions won their footing is evident from the facts that both porphyry and longinus opposed the new theory of ideas and that plotinus spends page after page in arguing that the one cannot think here then we find the dividing line between the conservative and the new platonism and the debt of plotinus to ammonius both conceptions are of the highest importance they form the bridge between ancient and modern metaphysics and whatever may be thought of the neoplatonist one the new theory of ideas is now so firmly rooted that we can hardly believe that there was once a time when it was not accepted end of section 11